This week on Silicon Rio, we have Philippe Boteri from venture capital firm Excel Partners with $10 billion under management. We're trying to build very big businesses and we want to back the founders who have the ambition. I'm speaking probably to two, 300 companies every year. I back the founders because I trust uh, their decision. I have a lot of respect for every entrepreneur. They are the guys who are ready to risk everything. We probably invest in only one company out of a hundred. Being a venture capitalist is all about prioritization. Don't listen to people who are saying it's not possible. Silicon Real presents Philippe Boteri, Excel Partners. Follow your passion. In London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Silicon Real. Each week, interviewing entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, financial technology, accelerators, and incubators in an exciting three-person format. Learn about the people behind the innovation. Locally filmed, locally sourced. Silicon Real. It's about the people. This is Silicon Real, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. My guest today is Mr. Philippe Boteri, who is a partner from Excel Partners, which is a leading venture capital and growth equity firm with $2 billion under management here in Europe and Israel and about $10 billion globally. Philippe, you focus on investments in security, cloud computing, and digital services, which includes the company's Blah Blah Car, which you're a board member of, who we had on the show a couple months ago, DocuSign, and Hey. Uh, Excel has offices in Palo Alto, New York City, London, and Bangalore, uh, where you guys have helped build over 300 companies, including big names like Dropbox, Facebook, Groupon, Spotify, Squarespace, and Wonga. Philippe, before Excel, you worked in Silicon Valley for Bessemer Venture Partners, then McKinsey. Before that, you were in the French Navy. I'm sure you got some stories about that, but welcome to Silicon Real. Well, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Good. I'm sorry we're late to anybody who's streaming here. We were just chatting away in the kitchen uh, about all things London. So uh, let's jump into to tech. You know, it's, uh, I've been reading your blog post. You have some great articles up there. And uh, I thought I would start off with one that people are talking about, but I want to get your opinion on. And that's this, this mythical creature everyone keeps talking about, uh, which are unicorns, which seem to be everywhere last year. You know, there's been some exits. For people that don't know, I guess a unicorn is, is really a term for a, a company with a large larger than a billion dollar market cap, right? At least that's what it used to be. Maybe there's going to be new ones. And we see things like that with Supercell, you know, Criteo, Just Eat last year, King, Zoopla. You know, everyone now, including you, has talked about kind of the next $20 billion company coming out of Europe. I was wondering if you, where do you see that happening? Is there a specific sector? Are we going to be able to do that in Europe? I just want to get your thoughts on that kind of general idea. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is that um, the term, I don't really like the term unicorn because yeah. a unicorn is something which does not exist, right? That's why it is a, a unicorn. Who came up with that uh, term? I don't know, okay. but <laughs> it, just if you look at our portfolio, so I was doing, you know, before coming here, the size, like how many companies in our portfolio in the past couple of years have raised more than $60 million and just, you know, on the fly could identify more than 12 already. Okay. Uh, you know, the largest one being Flipkart that raised close to a couple of billion last year. Um, so we're seeing a lot, uh, a lot of companies that are really reaching scale now, uh, including in Europe, which I think is the, the real innovation is because people 
before people were saying, well, nothing's going to come out of Europe of meaningful value. And now suddenly, right. well, you have Supercell, you know, three billion. Uh, you know, you have companies like Spotify, you have Avito in Russia, um, you know, you have companies like BlaBlaCar in France, you know, who, who knows, like, well, a company in France raising $100 million. Like, wow, you know, that's, that's, a, big. that's a big news of what's happening in France. But actually, it's not only in France, it's the entire ecosystem now is really, um, you know, is really bur- burgeoning. Uh, and that is because, I mean, we've seen the, the good, you know, this ecosystem in Europe at 15 years of experience now. And, and this is a time where you have repeat entrepreneur, um, you know, who are doing their second venture, of more, bringing more experience to the ecosystem, where you have people who have worked in the first generation of successful company and bringing that experience to new companies. Uh, and, and so we're seeing, re, we're seeing this happening. Uh, so now the question is, you know, what is, you know, the $20 billion company coming out of uh, Europe? I think we'll need to wait uh, a bit, but, uh, you know, we're making some very good headways. You know, one of the things that I've seen uh, repeating here, we've done 75 episodes here on Silicon Reel, and one thing I've started to hear more of lately, including something that Nicholas said from Blah Blah Car a couple months ago, was they're not in a big rush to get to the U.S. And I heard that from Dudil here in, in, in London and from Nutmeg, and there's a few of these companies that aren't in a rush. And I know with Nicholas, he's like, we're going to Turkey, we're going to Russia. Is, is that something, that, is that a strategy that will get to the 20 billion? Is that, are these anomalies, these companies, or is that a new European strategy? Well, I, I think the, the way I look at it, I think, is it really depends on the, on the sector and the business. And there are some sectors like software, for example, where if you want to be a leader in software and you want to be a, you know, a multi-billion dollar company in software, you need to be a leader in the U.S. So you will need to be in the U.S. market. I think the sooner you're there, the better. Uh, in other businesses, which are more consumer uh, businesses, I mean, you need to look at you know the entire world, right? Where where are the consumers? And you you're seeing you know there's there are a lot of people in Europe and, and Russia, you know, in Turkey. There are a lot of people in uh, you know India and China, and there are a lot of people in South America. And so, getting to the example of BlaBlaCar is you look at their 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 business, and you look you know you're looking at the U.S. and say, well. The cost of driving in the U.S. is lower than it is in Europe, uh, and uh, you know, BlaBlaCar is a long-distance ride-sharing company, so it works very well when you have cities, uh, when people can drive between cities that are you know between 100 and let's say 600 miles. And you look at uh, you know all of Europe, you look at India, you look at Brazil. I mean, you have this configuration. Mm-hmm. Uh, same for Russia, uh, but you look at the U.S. and the U.S. You have you know the East Coast where you could have a hub, you have the West Coast where you could have a hub, but Still, it's very distributed on the West Coast. I mean, if you go from uh, L.A. to San Francisco, for example, you know, the last mile is really a problem, right? Because picking someone in Santa Monica is very different from Huntington Beach, and it could be just one hour to get there. And then when you're in the Bay Area, are you going to San Jose or San Mateo or Oakland? And that's, you know, another hour on a trip, which is, you know, four-hour drive. And therefore, you're, you know, you have a lot of friction. So when you add this all up, say, well, is the U.S., the most attractive market for blah, blah, car? Probably not. I mean, look at India. It's a billion people, probably a target market of at least three, 400 million who are connected people. Um, you know, it just feels like a more interesting opportunity. And yeah, I think, you know, if, this, if the service really works, um, you know, in India and in Brazil, I mean, I, you know, I think hopefully you can reach some of the valuations we uh, talked about. Right. So no rush right now to get to America for, for blah, blah. 
Exactly. Yeah. Okay. You know, we were talking earlier about the sharing economy. I, you know, I know, you know, blah, blah, car really isn't ride sharing because it's kind of a different concept, but you know, you said on one of your blog posts that sharing, you know, isn't about uh, cost, but it's about value. And so it's something I recently had an Airbnb trip where uh, in New Year's Eve, I went over to Belgium and I stayed in this flat and the guy picked me up from the place and we got to see his quirky little, you know, flight, we, uh, place we communicated with him. And for me, it was a cheaper price. And it was about 10 times more value than staying at an impersonal hotel. And from now on, I'm just not going to use like, the hotel industry anymore. And is that something that you see developing with Blah Blah Car or some of these other sharing pieces where people are getting a lot more value out of what used to just be a simple transaction? Well, exactly. I think the, the important point about... Um, you know the the, the the sharing economy, which, and I'm not talking. I mean, there are different type of sharing economy, right? You have the the C to C, which is what Blabacar is doing, um, you know, which and what you know Airbnb is doing to some extent, which is really consumer to consumer. So it's not it's not a business that someone in Romney like Uber, for example, and that's why I think Uber is very different from Blabacar because Uber is basically a professional driver that you're calling with your uh, your mobile phone. I mean, there is no real sharing there. Right. Um, There's not a real community uh, there, is it, there? Either? Exactly. And it's not a community-driven uh, model. There's just blah, blah, cards. You know, the, the, the way you characterize is, is a community is when people are doing both, right? They are both, you know, blah, blah, car, you're a driver, but you're going to be a passenger sometime. You know, in Airbnb, you may rent your second property, but you will also uh, potentially rent a property for your next vacation. You know, and I say Airbnb, but it's the same for House Trip, which is, uh, you know, our European uh, competitor, right. or you know, one of our portfolio companies. So it's all this this economy, which is all about really sharing between people and people who are basically part of something where they want to uh, to share. And, and for them, it's not about only the you know just the pure cost. It's about you know what is the value that they're deriving from this entire. You know, being part of this community. You know, you're a, a, a VC. You're one of the partners at one of the bigger VCs. And a lot of people, you know, they look at VCs because they don't they they don't get to see them very often. You guys are kind of almost like celebrities, you know, because a lot of the startups are thinking one day and they don't know really what goes through your head. And I was wondering if you could describe to us what is it like being a board member on a company like Blah Blah Car. I was listening to these lectures from Y Combinator recently at Stanford called How to Start a Startup. It was like a, a series of sixteen lectures, and one of the guys said that ninety five percent of all board meetings are consensus. Censuses. He said it rarely comes to a fight in the boardroom. Usually it's already been discussed before. And I was wondering, is that true? Um, and if so, why is there a voting in a board? And what is it really like you know, when you go to these quarterly meetings? I was wondering if you could just kind of take us behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> every board is different. But I think uh, you know, taking the Blah Blah Car example, for me, you know, I, I feel you know, very lucky to be part of this uh, story. And for me, you know, the, the board meetings is just you know, the, the time where you, you get to, uh, to meet the team. But it's only one aspect of the interaction because I have, you know, I think we like, I personally like to develop a very close relationship with uh, the founders of the company uh, I invest in. And therefore, you know, for one board, uh, you know, kind of every couple of months, you know, there are multiple phone calls and interactions uh, in between. And it's, it's all about, you know, getting part of the adventure and you know, trying to help the management, help the company succeed by bringing the resources that you can bring, but without interfering with. I mean, they are the manager; they are managing the business day to day, and we don't want to interfere with that. But we just want to be the person behind who can provide the the help that um, you know that we can. I mean, one of the example of the things that we did with uh, with Blah Blah Car. So we did our first investment in um, 
in end of 2011. And as part of the due diligence uh, process, um, we looked across all the ride-sharing companies uh, that were in Europe. Uh, and we found a lot of small companies, and in particular there was one in Italy where we're like, we're not going to invest in that company, but it is very strong. You know, it was a couple of people, very strong, same vision. I said, well, we can't invest in you, but maybe it's, it would be interesting for you to get to know the Blah Blah Car team because you think you could be a great addition. So, you know, I put them in touch and by the time we closed the, uh, you know, the investments, you know, that acquired that, that company and, uh, and they launched uh, uh, in Italy a few months, uh, a few months later. So, this is a type of you know value we can provide by trying you know this outside look uh, you know at the market and trying to to help you know with recruiting people help with strategy potential acquisition um, so and that's you know our way to try to be part of the adventure and how do you walk the fine line between interfering with founders vision and helping out and directing i mean that that's ultimately the hardest job we're we're not i mean the thing is we're not directing i, I don't really like that word okay. because uh, the founders are, I mean, they are living their business day to day. And, you know, if I invest in a founding team, it's because I trust that they will make the, the right decision. And so I see my role, and that's the first thing I said to, you know, every of the founders, uh, you know, every company invested, I tell the founders, you know, I'm going to tell you things, and your role is just to filter whatever I say to you. Take whatever you think is interesting and just discount whatever you think is not interesting. Um, and so for me, I, I mean, I'm just trying to give input based on what the things that I'm seeing that, you know, their day to day in their business. I'm seeing a lot of businesses because you know, I'm speaking probably to two, three hundred companies every year. Uh, so I'm bringing this external perspective. I'm seeing all the things on the market in other regions that they may not see. And, you know, I try to share that experience with them, I think. And then I count on them to take whatever they think is relevant and apply it to, to the business. Um, and, and then there's some, you know, at some point there may be some strategic decision or should we make an acquisition, you know, is this acquisition or not? And, you know, I'm happy to be part of the debate. But at the end of the day, I think the founders are, you know, they know the business day to day and they are making the decision. And if I back the founders because I trust uh, their decision. Does it ever go to a vote in the board? I mean, is it always a unanimous or subunanimous well, you know, that the thing about this thing about voting is everyone talk about voting right, but you know I've been in this business for close to ten years now, and I don't think I've ever been in a situation where there's been a formal vote hmm. uh, right. on something. Okay. Uh, so it's all about kind of building a consensus and go in behind the scenes and taking a direction and. And people agree, you're saying. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, I think it's, it may take some time at some point to get alignment. But I, I think I haven't seen board where decisions are not, you know, taken at the end of the day when everyone is uh, aligned with them. Okay. Nicholas said something interesting to me when I had him on. He said, when you, uh, when you want advice, ask for money. And when you want money, ask for advice. And he said that he doesn't look at fundraising for a company as a photograph. He says he looks at it as a video, as in you should constantly have a dialogue with people about funding and venture and things like that. Do you agree, disagree? Is it that simple? Um, I, uh, I mean, I totally agree. With, I'm not going to uh, ask you for advice uh, right now. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with what, what he's saying. And uh, just taking a, a few examples, I mean, to, just giving with a blah, 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 example. I mean, I knew Nicola since 2004 because we were in the Valley, to, uh, in the valley together. And that's, a, that's actually a funny story because the, um, so in, in 2007, we had a, at that time, so he was leaving the Valley going back to INSEAD. 
and then I remember we had uh, a dinner at my house and, um, in San Francisco, and he was telling me, oh, you know, I've invested in this company called Blah Blah Car. You know, uh, you know I put an angel, I uh, participated in the angel round. And I, he described me the, what the company was doing. I was like, oh, it's, it's an hitchhiking company? You know, Nicholas, you're going to lose your money. Uh, I'm sorry for you, you're going to lose your money. And, um, and then, you know, I, I saw, uh, saw the evolution of the company and really started to grow. And then in their, when this formerly, the company formally raised a seed in uh, 2010, so I you know, spoke to Nicholas at the time, but, uh, and they, they had 100,000 members in the community and it was really taking off. Like, well, you know, I think I was wrong. It's very interesting. But I was in Silicon Valley. It was a seed deal in France and probably not the right fit for, for Bessemer at the time where I, where I was. Um, so I didn't invest in that round. But then when I came back to Europe, you know, in 2011, uh, that, you know, I jumped. And that was a time where, you know, Nicola joined full time. And I said, well, you know, this is it. Uh, and, so do you think if you hadn't known him, maybe that investment might not have happened? Well, I mean, you know, I think the fact that I've known him for a long time and I've seen the movie, like this company, you know, starting from zero and getting to 100K and then think, getting to a million. And then when I really started to dive into it, you know, in, um, in the back end of 2011, I said, well, wow, I thought the market was small, small because I looked at it as this is kind of hitchhiking. And then I realized, but this has nothing to do with hitchhiking. I mean, this is, this is trust. This is a community which is based on trust, and, it target, and this is low-cost travel. I mean, it targets a market. And when I look just in France, there are 700 million trips of 150 miles or more, 700 millions. And they were, at the time, just doing you know, maybe a, what, a million a month. So it was really a tiny, tiny market share. Uh, and I'm like, wow, you know, just in France, it can be very big. And then if we project that in other countries it can be really, really massive. So do you always encourage your portfolio companies to keep up dialogue with you know, future investors? Or do you encourage that to any startups that are watching us to just to con- constantly have that dialogue as opposed yeah. to this digital effort every time you want to raise money, you go ask? Well, exactly. I mean, you know, the analogy I would take is, I would take is like, you know, when, when you, we're a long-term investor. When you invest in a company for, you know, on average, seven, eight years, um, so it's not like a marriage, but it, it's close to a marriage. Longer than and a marriage. it's like, well, you know, if you're trying to, you know, get married, are you going to meet the person and try to get married in two months? Or, you know, is it better to have known the person for a longer time? And, and the answer is obviously the, the, the latter. And so getting to know a set of VCs that, you know, you're comfortable with, that like your model, but maybe you're not at the right stage right now for them, or, you know, you're missing something that they want you to demonstrate to get there. Keeping in touch with these people is great because whenever you're going to have, you know, you're going to walk over the tipping point that, you know, is going to make them really interested in the company, then they will have all the history with you, they will trust you, and the process will be uh, very smooth. And, and then on your side, as, um, you know, founder of a company, you really want to know who is going to get on your board and don't, you don't want to have surprises afterwards. Um, so that's why I, I really like this idea of, you know, Get, you know, keep meeting the VCs, give them updates, you know, once every six months so they know you, you know them, you see how they, you know, how they react when you tell them the different news and try to leverage a bit of their network if they like you. They, even if you, you know, they are not, you're not in their portfolio, they may give you some helps and some tips and help you recruiting. And that's how you build the, the relationship uh, over time. Okay. So if someone's a startup and they want to approach you, what is the best way and then the worst way to approach well, let's just say you, you know, as a, as a partner. Well, I, you know, I, I think uh, let's start with the, the worst way because okay. that's the, uh, you know, the, the easy one, which is uh, just uh, 
pick my email address somewhere and send me an email out of the blue um, because I receive a lot of email and sometimes I, you know, if I'm traveling, etc., it's just hard to process everything. And if I, especially if I don't know the person, don't know the company, and it's not a space I'm interested in, you know, it's not very high on the priority list. Right. Um, so I think the key is just just getting uh, getting an introduction. I think is that's what uh, is very important. If you want to get in touch, just find a way to find something that the person relates to. Uh, and if you're in the, you know, the European tech ecosystem, I'm sure you will find a way to be connected to one of you know, our partner, our associate, or find you know, an entrepreneur that knows us and try to get a friendly referral. Because you know, if I have, for example, the, uh, you know, the, the CEO of Criteo, uh, which I know very well, is sending me an email saying, oh, you know, I met with this entrepreneur. Uh, you know, what he's doing is interesting. You should look at it. Clearly, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna talk to that person uh, and follow up on the introduction. Uh, so it, something is just something small. Find something that, can, that the person is gonna relate to, and that really helps you get over the hurdle of, well, you know, this is something on my side now that I know I, I, I need to do, and we'll right. So there, for it. there's still value in a warm introduction. Oh, there's a lot of a value lot of value. In that, yeah. Okay, because a lot of people think tech is disrupting everything, and everyone's available to everyone, so that doesn't apply. But it does apply, right? Yeah, it does apply uh, because we got a lot of deal flow and. There is a first layer of prioritization we need to, uh, you know, we need to apply, and, and getting a friendly referral, I think, really, uh, really helps. Okay. Um, but then, you know, in, in many cases as well, I mean, we are a top-down. I mean, we, we have a top-down approach to the market, so we have several trends that we're following very closely, in which we are proactively contacting entrepreneur. Okay. So on our side, you know, I'm also sending emails to entrepreneur that you know I don't know, uh, but I really like their business, and I send them an email to tell them that I really like their business and want to speak to them. Do you ever get rude replies? from uh, entrepreneurs like you know stop sending me these cold introductions did people ever say that to you or not really well I mean I try to do the same and to some extent try to find okay, uh, you know a warm introduction to that entrepreneur but you know if I can I just try to uh, send a nice email and uh, and try to explain you know why I think their business is interesting here's our experience in the space and what we can bring to the company and um, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. If it doesn't, you try again, find another way. Right. Let's talk about profile. Fred Wilson is a VC in New York City. He writes a lot on his blog. I think someone said he blogs every day. I don't know if it's that true, but he, he spends a lot of time putting content out. How important is it for someone like you, you know, to create content or, you know, to build a profile? So maybe n- not necessarily you get contacted by everybody via email, but people are know you. And so they're like, yeah, I know that guy. I saw him at the Disrupt Conference. I saw him on Bloomberg. How important is that for you? Well, I mean, for me, it's not about being known. I think for me, it's about feeling approachable uh, and making sure that, you know, whatever an entrepreneur, when he wants to seek funding, is going to say, well, you know, this guy is writing things that are interesting. I've seen at a conference. He's talking to people. He's approachable. I want to speak to him. Uh, I think that's, that's what I'm trying to achieve. And so when I write my blog post, um, I don't write as often, uh, uh, unfortunately, because it, you know, it takes a, a lot of time. But I, I try to find a topic that, that is going to be interesting and valuable for an entrepreneur, where if an, an entrepreneur is reading this, he say, okay, well, he clearly knows about the space. He has thought about it. He's giving me some things which are making me thinking and maybe some, some piece of advice that I find valuable. Yeah. When you write, you write deep. So you can tell that you have thought about the blogs that you write about. And that's, that's in your expertise. 
Definitely. Um, let me ask you about, um, you know, other VCs. We had Ben Holmes in here from Index, which I'm sure you know from Just Eat. You have, you have a few investments with Index, yeah, that you course, guys along yeah. the way, Moshi's and, and a few others. But, you know, they are ultimately a European fund, right? They started in Switzerland. Now they're in, in London. I know they have offices in San Francisco. But Excel is, you know, it started in America, right? And so I was wondering how that changes your job on a day-to-day basis. Is it a difference when, you know, you have a powerful American base? or a history there. Also, you have a history of the guys in America, you know, with this, you know, $12 million investment in 95 in a thing called the Facebook, which I'm sure you've heard about ad nauseum. But like, is it weird to to go from an intimidating track record like that to come over here and do something with the same name, you know, on, on the door? Well, I mean, I, I think what is really uh, what was really important for me when I moved back from the U.S. and, and decided to join Excel. I mean, what I found very attractive uh, in the Excel platform is that it was a Silicon Valley culture, uh, and, I, and I think that's what we're trying to bring to Europe is the Silicon Valley culture. And all of our partners have spent a significant amount of time in the Valley, and a lot of them have learned the venture business in the Valley. And, and and it's a bit different from the VC. <laughs> How is it different? Because you're basically a product of the Valley, right? Well, yeah, that's where I... I mean, your accent exactly, isn't yeah. American, but you are. Well, that's yeah, my, my accent will <laughs> and it will remain French, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, I spent about 10 years in the Valley, and that's where, um, you know, I learned, the, the you know, the, the venture capital business. Uh, and, and so I think that there are a lot of things. It's about, you know, understanding the size of the opportunity and focus and you know, a lot of, um, I mean, the temptation is just to be too focused on, you know, just the numbers and, and try to minimize the risk to get to a, a mid-size outcome uh, because it feels less risky. And a lot of the funds, I mean, if you just do the math, if you're, you know, a $100 million fund and you have a $100 million outcome, that sounds good, right? You own 20, 30% of a company that bring, you know, half of the fund or one third back, it, it feels good. So you would try to optimize for this type of outcome. Mm. When, you, you know, on our side, like we're a larger fund and, you know, we're a global fund and we see that, you know, it's actually possible to build very large businesses and that's what we're looking for. And that's what, you know, we are bringing, the value we're bringing to, to our portfolio companies is global network. We want them to go global. We want them to build big businesses, and we're really raising, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the ambition of the company. I mean, one of the things which um, I think is very, I mean, I've seen it a few times, so that's why I want to mention it, is you see a company that's pitching you, and they're showing you some projection, and you're like, you know, this is nice, but, you know, doing 10 million in revenue in four years from now is good, but do you think you can do better? And their answer is, well, we think we can uh, and we'd be happy to, but the feedback we got from a lot of the VCs is that if we put numbers that are too high, then they're just saying it's not realistic. And okay. so we want to be more... And this so, is a European answer. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. Okay. So when I say, well, on our side, we're trying to build very big businesses and we want to back the founders who have the ambition. And that's kind of the, the culture we're bringing to the companies. You know, be ambitious, go global, and try to really change the world. Like you need to have a piece of technology. Believe that your piece of the technology you're building is going to change the world. So it's ultimately about risk appetite, really, and being comfortable with risk. I mean, that's almost a personality type. Can you teach that? Well, I mean, <laughs> or is that a culture? Well, I mean, I think it's part of the overall culture. Uh, you know, it's part also. I mean, another side of this culture is trying to be. Um, 
uh, you know, the way you're involved with the company and try to be probably, I would say it's, it's not a question of, you know, being supportive, but I think try to help more the company, you know, in recruiting, be more closer to business, et cetera. But you know, I think that there are some excellent VCs in Europe and we have, we're partnering with a lot of uh, European venture funds. So, uh, you know, I'm obviously very respectful of, you know, what they're doing. I think we're just trying to bring this Silicon Valley experience. You know, uh, off camera, we were talking about one of your pastimes, which is free diving, where you hold your breath and go into water for a long period of time. Now, that's about risk management, right? I mean, are there parallels here a little bit? Because, you know, you have to be comfortable with risk, but by definition, we're not as humans. So, I mean, is it a certain personality type that's comfortable with this? Well, I mean, there is a parallel, which, you know, you can be underwater for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) How long? Uh, But, I mean, the uh, I think... You know, free diving, I think, is, is, is all about, you know, being, I mean, being in an uncertain environment, but being very relaxed about it. Uh, and I think Sounds like investing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there's some analogy with, uh, you know, especially in the venture business, because um, there are a lot of times that are uncomfortable. Uh, you know, there are some times where, you know, the, the road is uh, shaky and, uh, and that's where, you know, you need to stay calm and follow your, your road um, and, and you know, believe in what you're doing, and if you focus and believe in what you're doing, you will succeed. Fair enough, fair enough. What is the hardest part of your job, and, and what, is, uh, what, is, what is the main job requirement for being a VC? Is it the risk management, or is it a bunch of different skill set? If you look back on 2014 and you think about the hardest time you have, I'm just curious, what, what is it? <laughs> well, that's, uh, you know, that, if, uh, that is a tough question. Um, Actually, it's, uh, I don't know how to really uh, answer that, uh, that question. I mean, I'm guessing for a startup, it would be, you know, raising money or it would be, you know, an MVP, that kind of thing. But you know, the thing is, our job is made of so many different things, right? right. Um, and it really depends at which stage of, you know, life cycle you are with your investments. But I would say if there is... The thing which is that we have to do very often and that is not very pleasant is at the end of the day, I have a lot of respect for every entrepreneur that is walking out of the door uh, because they are the guys who are ready to risk everything uh, right to achieve their vision. And sometimes it's just not a good fit for us to invest. And actually a lot of the time because we probably invest in only one company out of a hundred that we're seeing. Uh, that means in 99% of the time, we have to say, you know, politely, no, it's not a good fit. Uh, and you're saying that to people who have a lot of passion, have put a lot of energy. It's not, that's, I think that is what I see as the, the hard part of our that's business. That's the hardest part. It's because for, we have 99 no's for one yes. That's a lot of no's. <laughs> How do you say no in the right way? It must be something you've practiced because you really do have to say no in the right way because you kind of said no to Nicholas like back in 07. You even, you know, call his eye a little crazy and then it comes full circle. So the way you leave relationships must be really important. Yeah, I mean, it's not an easy way to say no to someone, right. especially when, you know, getting a financing is such an important event for, right. uh, for a company. So obviously the company has, you know, a lot of, positive discussions going, it's easier. Uh, sometimes they don't have any, you're like really counting on, on, on you. So, w- I mean, what I try to do is be as helpful as I can in terms of 
defining you know what I like about the business, what are the the risks and things that I you know that the company needs to prove, and and try to give them you know where they need to go to meet the bar that would make us invest, so that they have something to look forward to, and they have trying to you know give them some advice on how to push the the business further and get to the point where we can invest. Right, and feedback as well uh, that helps them. Exactly, yeah, but. It's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, you've mentioned that, that Europe is, is a collection of tech hubs. I think it's your words, where there's all these cities. You know, we've seen it Paris and Berlin and Tel Aviv. You guys are active in, in Israel. Whereas the U.S. is, you know, a very bicoastal you know, environment, I'm guessing. How does that change your job? I know you, you go to Heathrow a lot. But how else does it change the ecosystem when all these things are happening in different places? Our show is always talking about London because I'm in London, and I apologize. You know, but you see the whole continent. Yeah, so the, uh, the, the, the challenge is try to understand exactly what's happening in all these cities because there's a lot of things happening in many cities which are distant. And, and so how do you make sure that you know everything that's happened and you're in the relevant discussions and you know the great companies in each of these, uh, of these hubs? I think that would make this business very challenging because in, uh, in the U.S., I mean, 80% or 70% of the market is in the Valley. Then you have 20% um, uh, or 30%, you know, in New York and a bit in Boston and the East Coast and then the, a bit of everywhere. But uh, here in Europe, every city is distant by you know, an hour or two or three uh, uh, by plane and you need to, you know, be present in all these hubs and tie the relation, you know, have the right relationship, you know, with the angels and with the, the other funds you're working with, uh, with all the, the, the companies. Uh, so you, you need to be, and the way we, we're trying to do it at Axel is really to be focused on, you know, by areas and then try to follow these trends, uh, you know, across Europe. But we think that the sector and area expertise is what is uh, really important. What do you think that we need to do differently in London and, and in Europe in the next year or two? I know you mentioned to me earlier that you try to stay in touch with legislation and try to let them know what's going on and what needs to change. But, I mean, are there anything big that really sticks out? Well, in, in, well, in terms of regulation? Yeah, regulation, um, legislation. Uh, well, I, I think right now there is a lot happening around the sharing economy, which is a space where you know, I've made a few investments you know, with Blabacar, Housetrip, and Hassel. Uh, and these businesses are actually doing new things, and we need to make sure that the regulation for that um, is in place. And this regulation doesn't exist. And if you take a business like you know, Hustle.com, for example, they're, 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 they're not an agency, right? They're not an agency. They're not someone who employs a cleaner. They're just someone who facilitates the work of a cleaner. And there is no legislative framework today that really applies to this. Um, and, and it's clear that if they were to be considered as employee, then they wouldn't have a business because right now they have two. They are managing two thousand cleaners, and it's growing pretty fast. Is if they had to have two thousand uh, cleaners on their payroll, it, it wouldn't be viable, right? Uh, and so the, the, I think what I see, which is very encouraging, is think all the governments in Europe are very supportive because they understand that technology can create jobs, uh, and, and therefore it's something that they need to support, you know, for the better of uh, of the economy. Uh, and so they are very open to have you know, these discussions and see how we can adapt the, the different legislation to make sure that this ecosystem can actually uh, grow very nicely. Right. Tax issues, employment issues, that kind of thing are important. Yeah. You know, I did a, a, in, an informal and an unplanned case study a couple of days ago. I, I ordered an Uber in the morning. It was taking too long, so I switched to Halo. It came on time. And then I ordered an Addison Lee that came this morning, and I got each ride-sharing service, you know. And, and I know you guys are investors in Halo, and, you know, it's funny how, you know, 
depending on what news you read, one is doing better than the other, but it's still a competition out there, isn't it? And I was wondering what you see the, the future of ride sharing here in, in London and, and, and the rest, you know, because you guys, you know, you know Halo well, but everything's changing, right? Well, I hope the future is going to be full of Halo, but... <laughs> right, right, of course, and blah, blah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, blah, blah car, as I say, is, is, you know, is different because it's long right. distance. So, I, yes. I mean, the good thing is right now is they don't have uh, really real competition. So there's for blah, blah. Okay, for, okay. for blah, blah car. Uh, but just for the, the kind of the Uber Halo space, I, I think it's, uh, yeah, it is a space that is becoming very competitive. Um, and I think each company is trying to bring something a bit different with uh, Uber trying more, you know, they're focusing on, on black cars and Halo has been focusing on, you know, black cabs. And the benefit of black cabs is that they actually, they know where they're going. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, it has some benefits, especially with, you know, they can use the bus lanes and, you know, if there is yeah. a lot of traffic, they know where, where you go. And I had a, a funny experience with, um, uh, with Uber when I was in, uh, in Warsaw uh, and they just, Uber just launched. Uh, and I said, well, you know, Halo not being in Warsaw. I said, well, I'm going to try Uber. <laughs> okay. uh, exactly. So I, I got into my Uber and, and the thing is on the Uber app, you can only put the name of uh, the street name. So I put the street name in the application and came to the car and the guy starts driving. And I was going to a meeting, which was like 10 minutes away. And I took a cab just because I wanted to make sure I would be on time. Um, then I start, you know, playing, you know, doing email, etc. on my iPhone. And suddenly I look out and I'm like, we're on a highway. Where the hell I am? Uh, and then I look at the Google map and like, we're driving out of town. Like, I don't know where he is going, but it's really going far. And I think what, uh, and then the guy, I tried to stop the guy, but he wasn't speaking English. So it took a bit of time to actually get him to turn back. And then I found a hotel close to where I was going, where the address was unique. And what I realized is the name of the streets that I put in the system was called, the tra- translation was John Paul II, uh, the Pope. Okay. And therefore, there are probably thousands of these streets uh, in oh. Poland in that peak of street, which could have been 500 miles, and the guy was just driving there. So just, just you know, funny anecdote to say that I think it's sometimes it's very valuable to have a driver who knows where he's going. Right, and the race is still on in London, right? And yeah, I mean, really definitely. Is. I mean, you see uh, yeah. your experience, right? Yeah, it was fascinating because, you know, you, it, a lot of, it, it is a, it's a media game to a certain extent, and it is a media game because you have to convince people to kind of be thinking, like, these are my options and these are the best things. And so I was surprised to see that, you know, and uh, I actually Uber, Uber contacted me and said, why'd you cancel the cab? And I told them why. So I don't know. Anyways, there you go. They got Halo. Um, you were on the stage at Disrupt a few months ago and uh, with Saul and everyone else. And someone brought up Wonga and everyone went quiet. I actually wanted to have him on the show about six or eight months ago. I actually uh, think Wonga uh, serves a need in the market. And I think it's a business model that's been here for a long time and it's going to continue. And I was just wondering, is, is, is there things that you say about this when people ask you or is that company going to continue to do business and are we going to hear more about it in the future? Well, I mean, you know, I think things are very dynamic um, and so uh, I, I don't want to comment too much on it. But what I'm going to say is that, you know, this is a company that has been very successful, has been going through, a, you know, a transition and we've been helping them going through this transition and, uh, you know, it's hard to predict the future. Fair enough. That's a good answer. I always wanted to get him on because because uh, I I just I'm from the capital markets myself. So when I see something like that come and then fill a need, I mean obviously there was some mistakes made in some media, but it it's it's that market's not going away. So it will be addressed, I think, at some point. Well, I mean, I think any market where you see that you have millions of people using a service, 
Yeah. There is something behind There's it something right there. there. All uh, right. Stay tuned on that one. Um, mobile. I mean, you know, we see mobile pay. We see mobile everything. When Nicholas was here, he said in Turkey, the, the amount of people using Blabacar on mobile was, was sky high. And I mean, we all know mobile and know it's coming as one of your blog posts. But how is it really going to change things in two years? I mean, is it, is it going to be a world we don't even comprehend yet with all of that mobility? Well, I, I think mobile is kind of... It was interesting in mobile to see, you know, what is the right platform? I mean, mobile... The, the big change that happened with the launch of the iPhone, you know, in 2007 was suddenly your phone moved from a phone to being a mini computer that you have in your pocket. So suddenly now you, can, you have a device where you can have any type of applications in your pocket with location, uh, you know, a device which is location aware. Uh, so that's the, the big change. And so since 2007, we've seen a flurry of applications that have been developed and that are actually changing really our lives. And then on top of, of, of that, there's been an evolution in terms of you know, the size of the screen, right? And there was, you know, the iPad and then the iPhone and then anything in between. Now we're seeing iPhone that are, you know, very close to the iPad mini and the iPad mini. So I, I think the net net is that there is a ton of value of having a small computer that you can carry everywhere uh, and that is location aware. And that's opening a ton of new services. Um, and, and so, you know, it's like computing, like the PC seven years after the PC, right? It, you know, once the first PC was invented, seven years later, you had a bunch of applications, but you look 20 years later and you have, a, you know, a ton more application. And I think that's, you know, we're following the same phase with, uh, with mobile. Um, so I would expect, I think it's more than two years. I think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see a lot more things happening on mobile. Uh, and the real question is, in 10 years from now, will we still need, you know, a desktop or a PC? Uh, or is everything going to be in just one device that's going to be ultralight and have all the computing power that uh, then we need. Yeah, there was an article in the Times about like the new iMac and how it, it really is made for people that use it for very specific things, filmmakers and editors and photographers. And for that, there's a great niche. But for the person that used to just have a PC for no good reason, you know, that, that's kind of uh, going away you know, to a certain extent. So um, I was wondering if uh, what you see as far as being in the UK, you've been back for four years now, what you see as far as valuation do you find that at certain points you have to pay more than you thought you would for a company? Do you have to kind of walk away from deals? I mean, you kind of look at the equity markets here, but I know a lot of your exits aren't going to be for many years. So how, how does it feel now? Is it a good time, a frustrating time? Well, I mean, right now it's, it is a frosty time. Right. Uh, okay. And if you look at, you know, the size of the rounds and, you know, the, the valuations out right. there, I mean, if you look at the venture capital history in the past 30 years, there hasn't been that many times where a company could raise 100, 500 billion dollar in the private market. Uh, You're talking but, about say 100 is a blah blah, a billion is say Uber and, and others. Yeah, yeah, you know, or Flipkart. Right. I mean, this, this yeah. is uh, and you know, Cloudera raised 900 millions uh, in. in uh, so these windows are very, very unique, um, and they're a sign that we're, uh, you know, in, in frosty markets. I mean, the, the good news is that a lot of these companies are actually a very strong business model. Um, but, but that's, you know, I think part of the thing right now is valuations are very, uh, you know, very high, and therefore the, the round size are quite high. And so if you're investing in a proven business, you know, if you're in Cloudera, I mean, that's not going to go anywhere, right? Uh, but now we're seeing a lot more very early stage companies where the business model is not proven uh, and they're raising, you know, 20, 30 million. So it's not 100 million, but it's like 20, 30 million for a company which like, you know, maybe at the series A stage mm. uh, when there is, you know, still a lot of risk because you don't know if there is something real. And I think 
when you start seeing a lot of these things happening, I mean, that's where I think you need to be very cautious and very selective in your investments. But it's tricky because you might see something you really like, but you don't want to get into a bidding war and, you know, it, it makes it difficult call for you. Exactly. So you, that, I think selection and focus, like you need to really pick the one that you like. Right. Know? Okay. And so obviously it can't stay frothy forever. So we're going to see what happens in the next couple of years. There, there could be slight corrections. Who knows? <laughs> well, I mean, at some point, I mean, this industry has evolved, uh, you know, by cycle. And, and that's how the industry works. I mean, you start to have, you know, a lot of the cycle, there's little activity, then you start getting good companies, you know, funded, and then they, these companies go public, and then, you know, we had, you know, Facebook and LinkedIn, and that, that creates a lot of hype, and that attracts a lot of money. Valuations are coming high, and, you know, when there is a, a period of time where valuations are high, and, uh, you know, usually the returns are lower, and therefore there is less money coming in the market, and that's how kind of the cycle uh, evolves. Um, so at some point, the, cy- the cycle will, will turn. You guys just raised a, a big fund, right? A recent fund, $475 million? Yeah, we raised about yeah, 475 uh, in 2013 and okay. started to deploy and the So fund. what's your biggest challenge this year? Is it, is, it, is it investing that money, or are there other challenges for you? Well, no, I, I mean, I, I think the, uh, uh, what we're trying I mean, to do in this frosty time is we encourage our portfolio to raise money because that's a good time to actually start building your war chest so that, you know, when the, uh, you know, when the rates start to fall, you're, you're actually uh, have a lot of, uh, of buffer. Uh, so that's one thing. So that means there is a, uh, there is a lot of work to do on the, on the portfolio side. Uh, and then I think on the investment side, I think the, it's just hard. We need to be very selective. And, you know, all the late stage company have, right, we're seeing right now very high price. So that's, you know, we tend to go earlier because I think, you know, if you invest early, even if the valuation is high and you pay, you know, 40 or 50 million pre instead of 20 million pre, you know, if it's a billion dollar outcome, you still make a very sizable right. return. Uh, but if you pay a $700 million pre and, uh, you know, instead of, you know, 200, then if it's a billion dollar outcome, your return went you know, from 5x to 1.3x and then you don't make a living. So uh, that, that's where I think, um, you know, the, the challenge of this year is trying to be moderate about the investment pace and, and try to be very, very selective, go early stage with good ownership and try to be, um, um, I think, uh, very strict in terms of uh, valuation. What do you miss most about California? Uh, That's where I'm from. Surfing. <laughs> surfing, yeah. Right? It's hard to recreate that over here. Uh, well, exactly. So you just need to take care, take care on a, a plane. And uh, I mean, you can go in, in Cornwall, but usually when I try to go uh, surfing, either when I'm back in, in California, it's like goes there several times a year, we go, you know, south of France or Portugal on the Atlantic coast. There are some very good waves there. Okay, good. I always ask everyone that comes on a couple questions here at the end, and I'll ask you if you could uh, make a phone call to the 20-year-old Philippe. Maybe he was in the Navy then. I don't know. But what advice would you give to him? Well, I I think the the one advice I would give is just follow your passion. Um, uh, Because at the end of the day, I, I believe that, you know, people can be very successful if they really like what they're doing. Because being successful requires a lot of commitment, a lot of time, and you really need to be passionate about something to do it, and you, know, you need to like doing it, and that's how you're, you're very good. And it, one of the examples, one of the things you know, during my life that helped me realize this is you know, I, I tried to learn German. Um, <laughs> and and you know, I'm ashamed to say that I learned German at school for probably you know, 10 years. Um, to the point where at some point I was able to read a book in, uh, in German. Uh, but for some reason, I, you know, I stopped practicing two months and then I would forget all the words. And, and then at some point I realized, well, you know, life's too short. You just, it's not something for you. Just stop doing it. And I learned Italian and 
for some reason I learned Italian, you know, in a couple of years, and you know, I, I was uh, able to speak, and then I, I did some McKinsey studies there, and and then that stayed. And I'm like, wow, you know, why do you push yourself in doing German? Because everyone told you that it was good to learn German, and and it was something that was not for me. So you had no passion for it. Uh, exactly. In, this, in, the, I mean, in these frothy markets, and I'm sure my show doesn't help, I mean, do you see people that are getting into tech because it's the rock star thing to do? And do you sometimes walk into meetings and you're like, is this your passion or is this the way you, you think you're going to get paid? Do you see that sometimes? Yeah, I mean, it, clearly I see that. And, okay. and uh, you know, I see that with the inflow of people that are you know, contacting me right now and wanting to learn about venture capital and about startups, which... It's clearly I mean, so some wrong. of it may be genuine and trying, but some of other people you look at, you know, their background and you're like, why do you want to do that? I mean, you've done a lot of different things which are great, and why would you change? Try to change career right now in something where I think it's a very risky time to do this change right now when you're at the hype of the cycle. Right. Yeah, and you can tell, I'm sure, right away. You know the signs. Um, best advice you've ever received. Uh, let's go business, and, and maybe something that you've learned learned out in the valley that you know that you know at Bessemer or somewhere else. Well, I mean, I think one of the uh, advice I, I, I received, I think, um, was really, I mean, shaped, I think, the way I think when uh, practice business, and that's true for a lot of things, is the, the 80-20 rules, which is something I learned at McKinsey, which basically you need to be focused, be, you know, you need to be really focused on what matters. And, and I think that's every day our job, you know, being a venture capitalist is all about prioritization. I mean, we, you know, we're talking 200 companies and you just, time is our scarce, you know, scarcest resources. You want to make sure that you allocate the time where it matters. And that's true for the work we do with the portfolio. And that's true with the way we were, you know, when we were trying to select an investment. Uh, and that's an advice that, you know, that's true for any manager in a company. Just focus your time on the 20% thing that is going to have the 80% impact on what you're doing. Is it triage over at Excel? Do you sometimes look at your day and you're like, this is triage. I've got all these important things to do and I have to pick out the most important thing. Well, I mean, every day because, you know, in our job there, are, you know, I could have three times the time I have and still, you know, right. be busy, right? Because right. there's an infinite number of companies or an infinite number of articles I can read. There are an infinite number of things I could do for, you know, the, trying to help the, the, the portfolio. Um, it, so that, you know, I can do some you know, media interviews, you know, write blog posts, meeting companies, travel in, in a lot of countries. So you really need, you know, attend conferences. So you really need to be focused in terms of, you know, and the way we, I tend to think about it is like, you know, what are the areas where, you know, I really want to invest this year? And how do I make sure that, you know, I get smart about these areas? And what do I, how do I make sure that I speak to the best companies in this area in Europe? Uh, so, yes, it's, it's all about prioritization. Interesting. Do you have a morning routine that you do? You know, do you just get up at a certain time and have ways that clear your mind? I mean, do you have a way that you try to focus during the day? Um, I don't have anything um, specific, any routine I do every day, but uh, I like to exercise uh, regularly because that's a way for me to just clear my mind. Uh, and I find that, you know, if after working, you know, two days, work, you know, 25 hours, uh, you know, a long time, you have a lot of stress that you accumulate. And just for me, exercising is just a way to get more relaxed. You know, I have an hour where you don't think about anything that basically helps you refresh and kind of clear your mind. Yeah, it's crucial. All right, last question. You know, you kind of gave a little bit of advice before, but, you know, to someone that's watching, you know, that always wants to get a meeting with the VC, et cetera, I mean, advice to, to people watching that are starting their own companies. Do you try to tell them to go and find a market, find some traction, and then come talk to you? What do you generally say to people? Because people want to know. 
Well, so uh, the first thing I would, uh, I would say is uh, don't listen to people who are saying it's not possible. Uh, because when you start a company, you're going to hear a lot of that. And you're going to hear a lot of that from your friends, from VCs. Family. Family, <laughs> everywhere. But I think getting back to my first point, just follow your passion. If you, if you really believe in it, you need to do it. Uh, and I think you know, getting to VC is just, if you look at the people, look at the company they've been involved in, look at where they are, you know, what they do, and just try to find this connection that's going to differentiate you from uh, other people. That's the lesson, I think, of this. I mean, it's funny how we forget uh, the value of a warm intro. And I, I, you know, I'm contacting guests all the time. And sometimes I go cold, but sometimes the warm is a big difference because you rate it on who it is. So if it's someone you know well that says, you know, Philippe, you should probably spend five minutes with this guy, then it changes the game. So, so there you go. If you want to contact Philippe, find a way, get smart. And uh, they can find more about you guys at Excel.com, right? You guys got a great site. And your blog, what's your blog called? Uh, it's uh, Cracking the Code at Blogspot. Cracking the Code. Okay, Fantastic. You know, we, we say uh, on Silicon Real, it's about the people because we try to recognize that even though this ecosystem's tech, I think it is ultimately about people. I mean, you probably ultimately do invest in people, really, right? Exactly. Yeah. We it's could, all about people. It's about I the agree. people, not the tech, right? Well, I mean, you, you, need, you need both, but, you know, the right people, uh, you know, will find the right take and the right differentiation. Excellent. Cool. If you're listening to us on iTunes, you can see uh, we're incredibly well-dressed today on our YouTube channel. And uh, yeah, fantastic. I'm glad we had the live audience. Thanks so much for your honesty. And uh, it was a lot of fun. uh, And I wish you all the best. All right. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure to be here. Okay. Take care. This week on Silicon Reel, Charles Armstrong, founder and director of The Trampery. Every building we do is a laboratory. You want to design things that increase the likelihood that two people are going to bump into each other. It's a very inexpensive way to actually help groups of people to to achieve more. There were investment deals that got done. There were uh, sponsorship deals that got done. Collaborations got seeded purely by unpredictable, serendipitous conversations. When you see an industry that's ripe for disruption, you want to get stuck in. Be optimistic. Be excited about the future. Silicon Reel presents Charles Armstrong, The Trampery. Go out and take risks.